umpire fans and welcome back to another episode of the leading edge where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate joining us on this episode is an umpire that's currently working within the baseball canada supervision program has worked two wbsc international events worked six plus years in minor league baseball and a guy who rides a unicycle in his spare time keith mcconkey topics covered in this half of the interview include why he got into umpiring part of his minor league baseball career, and his adventures in the Venezuelan Professional Baseball League, otherwise known as Winterball. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming! Interesting baseball facts. In the early 1900s, Major League Baseball umpires received a salary of between $1,500 to $2,000 annually. Now let's say we adjusted for inflation for 2021, that would be the equivalent of $45 to $60,000 a year. Let's take a moment and go back to 1905, where all Major League teams played a 154 game season. Let's just say that all umpires had to umpire 150 games. 1500 divided by 150 is $10 a game, game fee? Wow. Well, I guess I shouldn't be growling about our $75 game fee. Hello everybody and welcome to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Now, before we get going with this episode with our guest Keith McConkie, let's just do a recap of what's been going on in the umpire world since our last episode. The reason why I brought up 1905 is because during that time period, a famous umpire by the name of Bill Clem rocked the major leagues. When I say rocked the major leagues, Bill Clem worked a record 18 World Series. This is impressive because no other umpire has ever worked more than 10. On top of working 18 World Series, Bill worked 5,375 regular season Major League Baseball games, all in the National League. He worked 103 postseason games and two all-star games. Looking at all the statistics, it doesn't appear that Clem was the type of umpire to back down, as he holds the record for the most career ejections by any major league umpire at 251. Now with all those interesting facts and numbers, I bet you're wondering how many seasons did Bill Clem work? Well the answer is 37. Clem worked right up into the ripe old age of 67. Though he wasn't the oldest umpire to ever work Major League Baseball, that record is held by Bruce Froeming. Now, not to take away from the fantastic career of Bill Clem, check out a link in our show description that interviews Bruce Froeming after his 38-year career in 2007. Now, as umpires, we know we rarely get recognition and quite frankly, we never want it. But with a career like Bill Clem's, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, did the right thing and inducted him into the Baseball Hall of Fame posthumously in 1953. Now the reason why we bring up Bill Clem is because we want to bring up another umpire who has experienced a milestone this week. And that umpire of course being Joe West. Joe West made his debut in Major League Baseball in 1976 at the age of 23. During his lengthy career, one that has spanned 43 years and is the longest by any Major League umpire ever, he spent the first 23 years umpiring in the National League before he moved to covering the entire league in 2002. Let's just put Joe's career length into perspective for a moment. 
He has worked for, with, under, against 10 different commissioners. Man, my head hurts just trying to digest the idea of having a new boss every 4.3 years. For a career that has lasted as long as West has, he has had some very notable games, including working Nolan Ryan's fifth career no-hitter in 1981, being part of Willie McCovey's 500th home run in 1978, Felix Hernandez's perfect game in 2012, and Albert Pujol's 400th career home run in 2013. Throughout his career, West has worked one World Baseball Classic in 2009. As a side note, check out a show from Season 1 with Corey Davis, where Corey shares with us his fantastic experiences from meeting Joe West and some of the gifts he received when Corey attended the World Baseball Classic in 2009. Now back to Joe West. He's worked three All-Star games, three Wild Card games, eight Division Series, ten League Championship Series, and six World Series. Now off the field, Joe is known as Country Joe West, as he has released two country music albums, has had a small acting role in the comedy film The Naked Gun from the Files of the Police Squad, and made a cameo appearance in the television crime drama The Oldest Rookie. He also plays golf on the Celebrity Players Tour. Man, this guy's busy. Now the real reason why we brought up Bill Clem and Joe West, undoubtedly two of the most famous umpires of all time in Major League Baseball, is because on May 25th, 2021, at Guaranteed Rate Park, in a game between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Chicago White Sox, Joe West worked home plate in his 5,376 game to break Bill Clem's record of the most regular season games umpired in Major League Baseball. And though I have never met you, Joe West, I'd just like to wish you congratulations on your achievement and thank you for being what many have described as an umpire is umpire. Now, moving on, before we get into this episode's guest with Keith McConkie, let's reflect back on the last episode where we brought on Nova Scotia native, an individual who has two Baseball Canada national experiences under their belt, has worked independent professional baseball, has gone to umpire school, and is now currently working minor league baseball, Alex Lurie. So if you've tuned into it, this is what you got. But if you haven't had the time to listen to it yet, this is what you're missing. I wasn't terrible. Uh, in fact, my first game as a rookie-level player, I turned an unassisted triple play. He called me to tell me, yeah, you're going to do your first senior game. And I showed up, and they told me. They didn't tell me before. They told me then and there, you're on the plate 45 minutes beforehand. Seeing my name on the gold medal first base, it was a very rewarding and humbling feeling. You know, he lit a fire under my ass. My first game, I had great crew chiefs there. Trevor Gretzky was making his home debut. Wayne Gretzky's son. Wayne was rumored to be in the building, so we had sold out 6,500 people in my second game of the Can-Am. The manager said, thanks, Alex. I looked, no problem. And he was talking with another gentleman by the name of Derek Jeter. Sure, sure. I know lots of people that know Derek Jeter. He just name-dropped him anytime. But anyways, what a great episode. If you haven't had the chance to listen to it, check it out on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Alexa, Amazon Audible, Tune in, Google Podcast, I'll go on and on, but anywhere you podcast. But I'm assuming since you're listening to this, you know where to find it. But anyways, Alex, thanks for coming on and sharing with us some of your fantastic experiences this far. And good luck in your professional umpire career. Go knock some socks off and show them what Canadian umpires are made out of. Okay, it's also the customary, check us out on Facebook, Leading Edge Umpire Stories. 
Sometimes we post stuff there, or we just alert you that the new pod has dropped. Again, leading edge umpire stories on Facebook. Okay, one more plug before we get into this episode. We always talk about the umpire family here on The Leading Edge. And one of the things that I would like to do for other family members is to advertise your business for free. Simply shoot me a message over on the Facebook. What does your business entail? What's the slogan? Some contact information? I'd love to put together a little commercial for fun so that we could advertise your business and other umpires can support you. Again, this is completely free, but just a way to give back. And since we're talking about advertisement, I think it's important to talk about AtlanticOfficials.ca or Mike Doucette. I've dropped his name and his company here on a couple of occasions, and I'd like to thank Mike for allowing me to do that. It's just a little fun that I get to do to make myself feel important. But the reality is, I recently used his services. I contacted him, I said, Mike, I need a new mask. What do you got in stock? What do you have? He says, I got this, this, and this. I'm like, sounds good. He hit me with the cost. I e-transferred him. Literally, he had it shipped within 13 hours. Phenomenal. I had it on my doorstep within a week. Now, I love the big retailers because they always have some great reviews and a really nice website. But the reality is, I also want to support local or I want to support my family. So a big kudos out to Mike at AtlanticOfficials.ca. We joke, but contact Mike at 506-866-6436. I guarantee you, you contact him, Mike will help you get on your way. But anyways, thanks again, Mike. Appreciate the great working relationship we have and the support of Leading Edge Umpire Stories. Okay, that's enough. I'm tired of talking now. It's time that we get on to this interview. So without further ado, Leading Edge Entertainment is honored to introduce a longtime Baseball Canada umpire and current supervisor, an umpire with two international events under his belt, a guy that worked six plus years in minor league baseball, including working the double-A Midsummer Classic, the Major League Baseball Home Run Derby, and a guy that can't part with his 1995 Charlotte Hornet starter jacket, Keith McConkie. Keith, welcome to The Leading Edge. Hey, Philip, thanks for having me. I uh, tell you, I was pretty excited when I, you reached out a couple of weeks ago and say, hey, how'd, how'd you like to join me uh, on my podcast? And I thought, well, what the hell? It took you so long. <laughs> well, like, I geez, I'm listening to all these guys like Shoe Chuck and all these guys that rob out and telling their stories. I'm like, what about me? Well, it's an honor, first of all, and I can't wait to share some of these stories. Now, you have to blame your buddy Trevor Grieve for giving me your info. <laughs> Typical. Well, we'll thank Trevor for this episode later, but first thing we like to do here on The Leading Edge is we like to give the guests the opportunity to share with us a little bit of their past history. So first thing, Keith, did you play baseball growing up? Sure did. Probably stopped at around junior age, I would think. Well, I shouldn't say that. I stopped playing baseball. My buddy's still trying to wrangle me out and to play slow pitch, but... Doesn't count. You know, the problem is we play in like Division Two or whatever you got like division one it's all these pro guys and division two and and i just want to catch because it's safe uh and they want me to play second base i'm like boys these guys are hitting the ball really hard at me and i don't like it like i'm used to trying to get out of the way of the ball and now you want me to on purpose get in front of it i don't know if i like that i don't think i could play the infield in slow pitch my face is too beautiful well yeah i i, I don't understand the the face too beautiful part i i 
a face for radio. <laughs> you know, like they're not going to put me in the outfield because can't judge a fly ball. You know, they hit the ball in the air in the infield and playing second base and I'm hoping the shortstop or the first baseman come over and get it. But well, they're buddies and, you know, it's better than sitting at home, do nothing. But slow pitch in the outfield, isn't it home run or bust in slow pitch? No, lots, lots of cans of corn. You know, you get these heroes, the, the 25 year olds that they're swinging for the fences every time. And it's really hard to hit that ball when it's coming from over top of your head, right? It's, it's, it's a different. really awkward, it's an awkward swing. But isn't that just a Ken Griffey Jr. swing plane? Rip it from the ground up. Yeah. If they were swinging like Ken Griffey Jr. though, they wouldn't be playing on my team. But the Mariners are about sub 500 at the time of this recording, so they're not very good either. But looking back at baseball, you played till 21U. What position did you play? I was a catcher. I guess, uh, you know, naturally going from being a catcher to being an umpire was sort of a natural. You know, you're used to seeing the ball come in a specific way. So, you know, I think it created a level of comfort in the, the early going that I wouldn't have had had I been playing a different position. Well, it seems very common. A lot of the umpires that we've had on talk about their history and they are catchers. And one of the questions I have to ask every umpire is, do you think you've seen the strike zone better as a catcher? You know, better umpire as a catcher? Did you get every pitch right? Uh, well, no, but I think part of the thing was all the shots to the head when you're catching. <laughs> so you take a bunch of shots to the head and now you want to get behind the plate and, and umpire. But better umpire? No. I just think uh, probably a greater level of comfort on, on how the ball comes in and, you know, not being completely worried about getting hit and stuff but not it didn't make me a better umpire that's for sure takes a while to get used to being an umpire behind the plate and getting rid of that fear i recently read some stuff about catchers pulling pitches and getting some strikes for their pitchers do you think you were any good at getting that extra strike for your pitcher oh i was <laughs> what do you mean by good did i think i could pull it 18 inches and get it called a strike absolutely <laughs> uh, did i probably not right you're sounding like molina sometimes everything somehow hits the center of the dish I'm sounding like a guy named Ronnie Paulino that I had going through the minor leagues. If you look him up, he played quite a quite a while in the big leagues. But, you know, his managers and position players and stuff used to apologize for him all the time. It was like he was catching with a fly swatter. It was brutal. <laughs> and he was a giant, and he, you know, he stood with a, a straight back when he was supposed to be crouched down. So you could really just see his numbers and a glove moving all over the place. It was an adventure. <laughs> well, you know what? Now, being a good framer could be beneficial. It could be detrimental. Like you said, it's frustrating. But I recently read a statistic about Buster Posey being the best framer in Major League Baseball. Now, like we know, there's a statistic about everything in Major League Baseball these days. But Buster Posey in 2016 saved his team 27.6 runs. If you're anything like the Blue Jays that lose a lot of games by one run... Saving 27.6 runs a season could be the differential between winning and losing 27 games. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a pretty cool stat. I'd really like to see how they figure it out. Um, I'd like to see the math behind it to yeah. figure it out. I did see a thing the other day, uh, probably a few months ago, and, and they showed catchers, and, and some of them are starting with the glove really low to the ground now, and they're sort of as, instead of that, give them a big target nonsense, right? I mean, a big leaguer should be able to throw a strike whether they're throwing at a glove or not. They start low, and as the pitch comes in, the sort of the glove is drifting up instead of that whole reach down, stab it, and then pull it back up. Right. And that that one made a ton of sense to me. Yeah, they're like, you know, that that one that's in, in around the bottom knees, which 
for me has always been the most challenging one. You got a, a sinker ball pitcher throwing hard and you got to catch it with a lot of glove movement. Those ones can be tough, right? And for me, that's the one. It made tons of sense if they're drifting the glove up than what you see now. You're talking Yaddy Molina. That guy is, he's pretty slick back there. Yeah, he is. Like he, he makes some, some real borderline pitches look, look like a tasty treat. I wouldn't call him slick. I'd call him more stick because he is the catcher that did have the ball stick to a foreign substance on his chest protector. And just to prove it, I'll throw a link in the show description. But that's a topic for another day. But you mentioned that you struggle with the low outside corner. I feel like you have the Aaron Roberts syndrome. It's okay. I'm glad that you admitted early. So I wouldn't say low outside. Low middle, low in has always been my most challenging pitch. And and I don't know why. I really don't know why. I've tried getting lower and... And I know we teach don't put your chin below the top of the catcher's head, but really at the professional level, it's do whatever you need to do to get pitches right. 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 So you're going to miss that outside pitch. Well, probably not. So if you think about the catcher, the pitches on the outside corner, the catcher is going to open up that glove shoulder. Yeah. Right. Like they're going to open up and they're going to give you a bit of a look. So I've never had, that issue in and out for some reason that low middle low low inside pitch and if the catcher crowds you in and you got that cutter at the knees that's that's a tough one too it is and i think we teach fundamentals and you're the course conductor i'm not but we teach Mm -hmm. fundamentals with the game in perfect sequence but in the reality the catcher does not set up the same way every time the hitter doesn't set up the same way every time the arm slot angle from the pitcher is different every time. It's just try to do your best with and try to stay as close to the fundamental as you can. But like you said, just goal is to get pitches right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you have to teach some basics, right? right. When you got a little point. kids. You got to learn to crawl before you walk, before you run, uh, before you jump over hurdles, right? So, and it comes with reps. You know, everything we do in life, 10,000, you know, 10,000 times to perfection, you might hear from time to time. So, I mean, the more reps you have, the better. And I, I'll be honest about it. When I'm nowhere near the umpire I, I am now than I was when I was doing it every single day. Yes. Right? Like nowhere near. Now you've ridden the bike so many times, you can figure stuff out pretty quickly. It's supposed to be last March. We're going to the Olympic qualifier and and I went into the cages in February and saw some pitches and then I would have went down there and been okay. Right? Because you might struggle for the first inning or two, but then you figure it out. You've been on that bike so many times. And at that international level, so interesting because they've now introduced replay and this clock Right. And so now you're, you have to handle, excuse me, the clock and the timing and, and a lot of game management issues that come with that. I've seen at the international level, I've seen umpires fall apart because they didn't have the ball strike safe out stuff was not automatic. They didn't have that down. They weren't that confident with it. So once they had to start managing the other things, those basics fell apart. And that's a disaster waiting to happen. And I've seen it rejections and potential protests and it's kind of scary stuff right but do you think at that international level where it's supposed to be elite but you end up that way sometimes they introduce things that people are not used to yeah and that's the rigidity and that's about trying to be able to work on game management but not so much as trying to control the game or the teams but trying to control yourself being the supervisor i know i've gone to baseball canada national championships Mm -hmm. and just adding some kind of different aspect to the game just throws people completely off from 
you're supposed to work at five o'clock and it rained. Now you're going to work at four o'clock instead. That just throws guys off. Or midnight. Right. <laughs> right? Like, right. That's so interesting because having umpired at national championships and supervised at national championships, people concentrate so hard on, oh, I'm going to this national championship and I really got to kind of master this three umpire system. You're now killing yourself, ball strike, safe out, rule interpretations, you know, enforcement of rules that happened and or you're going to be a crew chief and you're now focusing so hard on the other people on your crew and helping them out that you now struggled. I I understand that challenge. It's because you're now an old, the thing that people freaks people out is I got a supervisor watching every minute of every game, right? So instead of just going out and doing what you need to do and doing the thing that you do every single day, so many people just I got a supervisor. Am I putting my right foot in the in the proper spot? Who cares? Like these are the fundamentals. This is a three umpire system. You're moving here, you're moving here, and here's why. Do I care whether you're three feet one way versus the other? No, because that makes zero difference in how well you officiated. So yes, there's a supervisor here, but we're not necessarily there to to judge people and evaluate. It's I mean, you're there to mentor and you're there to help people become better officials right that's really what you're there for now if somebody you know part of the evaluation matrix of the rubrics that we put together several years ago that that really needed to provide consistency in the evaluation process from one supervisor to the other and it's just like the business world right you provide consistency in the evaluation matrix so that people know where they stand if somebody's not ready to be at the Baseball Canada Cup or the Senior Men's National Championship and they maybe should have been a level down, the recommendation to put them at that other level is entirely to help them be successful, right? And the other thing I remind people to this, through this process, Philip, is it's not about us. Those teams are there to try to win a national championship. It's a wonderful honor for us, and we're putting the best officials in the country at, at that level to be, you know, to officiate those games. But in the end, it's not really about us. Those teams are trying to win a national championship. We're going to do whatever we need to do to put the right people on the field to make sure that it's done fairly. Right. Right. So it's, uh, I mean, I love supervising, but it is harder than umpiring at a national championship. It's not even close. Since you brought it up, how is it harder? more work there's more challenging there's more tough conversations uh there's zero time off right (laughs) so you go to a city you go to a city you've never been to and you want to see the sites well you better make a deal with somebody to try to get away from the yard for a little bit you better hope some games get done early or but i i find supervising very rewarding i enjoy it and that reward do you feel that that's because you've been through the process before and you feel like now you're contributing back to a program that you received? I'm, I'm going to put words in your mouth a lot from, or mm-hmm. is that just, it's just a different challenge at this point in your career? It's a different challenge. So I look at it like, okay, so I could go umpire national championship and I'm going to get this cool free trip to probably somewhere I've never been before. Uh, but from an on-field developmental standpoint, it's probably space that's better taken up by somebody else. So they're probably gonna, it's gonna be a more enriching, rewarding experience for them to be umpiring on the field. Where I feel like, you know, the time spent to go through the, you know, the clinician process and all the years teaching clinics and then going back through and, and, you know, having the honor of teaching at a caravan, 
you know, to get my master course conductor status, that that's where I find the challenges. How do I get better as a supervisor? Right? Like I can tell you the X and o, X's and O's of umpiring and, you know, game management things that probably you might not soak in because in Trevor would be the same way and Aaron and, and anybody, you know, that's gone to international right. baseball. There's lots of guys and gals, lots of guys and gals. I don't want to exclude the gals in our organization that have done. No, uh, some fantastic you know, people. Gone those, yeah. Gone those high levels, but you know, it's just, where's the most value for the program. Right. And, and I find I'm still learning all the time. There's, some of these course conductors that were educators for a living, Chuchuk yep. and, and Chris Wilhelm, and so just unbelievable. And Lisa Turbitt's another one. I think they're so creative and their ability, you know, your ability to teach is something that I'm always trying to, always trying to learn from. It's remarkable. It is. And those educators definitely bring a lot to our program. You've mentioned some names there, but one individual, Ron Suchuk, once explained to me that the course conductor program is basically a small pedagogy of education. I was like, what's pedagogy mean? And he's basically the theory of teaching. And that's one of the nice things. Kids. Did he, did he correct himself? The theory of teaching kids. He okay. wants to talk about andro andragogy. <laughs> andragogy. Okay. So adult learning? Adult learning. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's really interesting because I look at the Baseball Canada course conductor program. Like I said, I'm not part of it. That is a goal of mine. Some people just think it's all about just learning about umpiring and that's it. It's learning how to teach people for people who don't know how to deliver educational material to others. Because if we've learned through this pandemic with all this stay at home teaching, it's an art. There is. I mean, I remember my first uh, caravan. So I was fortunate enough that I, I came out of that caravan as a senior course conductor. And that was before we moved to the way we're doing it now, where you just come out as a, con a course conductor. And, and then you, you really have to go through a mentorship program to get to that senior course conductor status. So, I mean, I, I remember going through that process and, and I was going through, I just started a new job and I was in the process of moving. Like I think my house closed, you know, the week after the caravan and, and I get into the, the hotel room and my roommate, and I don't want to throw him under the bus, but I get into the room and this guy's got poster boards, like <laughs> four, four by six poster boards up on the wall. And he's got all this shit written down. And I was like, what did I get myself into? I'm in like, <laughs> You know, he's got a PowerPoint and I was like, I didn't even know what PowerPoint was like this is 2007 and I got like some cue cards written out yep, yep. <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, I'm going to have to come up with some ideas to spice this up and use some flip charts and stuff because this dude is showing me up. Right. <laughs> I was like, what am I, what did I get myself into? But you know, the real fortunate part is, you know, because of the level that, I had been umpiring the the baseball piece of it and and having those tough conversations and those those were some things that came naturally. So it's a lot like going into a national championship and now all of a sudden you're forgetting what you already know how to do. Right. Right. So the, there was I was just I had to focus on the the teaching piece and the things that we're learning through the process. But it was cool, man. Learning about multiple learning styles and just I mean the instructors were fantastic. I learned so many skills that, that really I use today. Every day. Every day. Yeah. Every single day. That's what I tell a lot of people about umpiring and trying to recruit people is that you can acquire skills in this program at a various 
level of for a various amount of things and it's not just calling balls and strikes that you can use every day and oh life skills right like life skills that you can learn i guess this is the best time to say it is that thank you to go out to all our course conductors and our people that try to make this program better from the instructional aspect as we learned this year in the pandemic a lot of us might not be getting on the field a lot of us are taking this opportunity to brush up on how to be better umpires without umpiring it's just a new process that whatever this perpetual beta that we're stuck in right now but thank you to everyone that keeps putting back so that we can all be better umpires when baseball resumes oh like i don't know that that nation the national clinic this year i enjoyed it oh it was fantastic you know and and it was so much different than what sometimes you get in the repetition of you do the same thing every single year and and how do you come up with something different so from a teaching perspective we're always trying to make the product better and we're always trying to you know do things a little bit differently you know and you need to start thinking outside the box so the one thing i really appreciate about the national clinic this year was it was way outside the box man like yeah. it was out of this part partially out of necessity right. but it was you know the the geniuses behind that phew, amazing job yeah, it was. And, you know, I come from healthcare and quality improvement is always big on the list. And sometimes you got to create a crisis to get change. And mm -hmm. uh, if the pandemic isn't a crisis, I don't know what is essentially, but it forced change within the program and it takes leaders to really adapt to that change. Mm -hmm. One of the things I liked about this year's super clinic is the opportunity to go back a couple of times. Won't surprise a lot of people who know me. I might fiddle and fitch in my seat all day at a super clinic and I'm the guy passing notes or making smart ass comments, but I was able to focus on my own at home, review it and then go back and, and it really hammered it through as mm -hmm. crazy as it sounds umpiring 20 years that this year is the year I finally understand batter runner runners lane interference. I just feel like I was able to focus on that. And I, that's what mm -hmm. I've gained from this year's super clinic with the most important takeaway being that it's, the inability of the fielder to field the ball that causes the interference, not the throw. Finally, oh, at first base, yes. runner's lane. Okay, yes. yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, yeah, runner's lane. Like it has everything to do with the first baseman or the fielder trying to catch the ball. If the guy makes a bad throw, it has nothing to do with that. But I'm going to say it talks about the innovation of the course and the ability to go back and do things and just doing things outside of the box that really helped me clue into that rule. And the other advantage was it was consistent across the country, right? I so couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. I, I remember two, three years ago, maybe there was the clinic agenda that went out and check swings was the, was the hot topic of the year. And I remember communicating with other people across the country and they're like, yeah, we read the check swing and it was kind of hit or miss, but we're like, well, we really dove into it. And they're like, yeah. So even the interpretation of a check swing within the baseball Canada program, had potential for various interpretations of the yeah. same rule. And and I'm a rule book terminology freak. Okay. So every time somebody says check swing, I cringe. Okay. Because the rule book doesn't say anything about check swing, right? It says half swing. So I've had more than one protest. Um, so I've always been paranoid about using rule book terminology. Fair. Right? If you miss quote a rule based on the wrong words or how you say it, you could cost yourself a protest, right? Because the, the person reading the protest or deciding on it may not, you know, may not know. They may just take your the words you're using and decide something else. So I am a bit of a freak on the rule book terminology. 
we all got our thing and that's yours yeah probably shouldn't say this out loud but i'm not a guy who like studied the rule book all the time i did pretty good on the rules at umpire school but you know i, I never would have been that rule guy there was a guy on my crew in double a named brent rice who was partially responsible for rewriting it into its current okay vision uh he started writing doing this when we were in like a ball so he was a rule freak and he was just amazing at it right he always taught at harry's he was one of the the lead instructors at, at wendelstown umpire school for many years but and he's a lunatic he's like chris graham he went through the minor leagues twice i'm not sure why anybody would do that to themselves or their family it's the definition of insanity <laughs> um new city every four days sleeping in hotels eating garbage food it doesn't sound like a good lifestyle to me the guy likes the best western points yeah <laughs> Yeah, Best Western, Super 8, the Star Motel in Jamestown, New York, where you got a duck. I don't know if, what you call Is it a school of bats? I don't know what you call it, but I think it's you called got a bats. bats just outside of your hotel room and you got to duck them to get in your room and then close the door as fast as you possibly can to avoid them getting in. <laughs> not, a, not a nice place, right? Super 8 in New Britain, Connecticut, where you, you quite literally, your pillow would be the thickness of a mouse pad. Oh. And just terrible. You're you're concerned the sheets might not be clean. But there was a McDonald's that shared a parking lot with the hotel, so that was pretty badass for a guy making twenty two bucks a day in per diem. Ninety nine cent McChickens. Oh, buddy, Wendy's. You can get two ninety nine. I think it was ninety nine cents. You get a five piece nugget yep. or four piece nugget. You get two of those in a Caesar salad for under five bucks with tax. Sweet. Hey, don't forget to add that frosty. You're right. Okay, I have some minor league questions coming up, but let's jump back. Why did you get into umpiring? Getting into umpiring was interesting. I'm the guy that did it as a part-time job. I always tell young kids, like, why, why are you doing this? And, they, you know, nobody wants to answer. Oh, we want to stay in the game and get back to the game. I'm like, you're 14. <laughs> you're still playing peewee or whatever the, whatever it's called now. What do you mean give back to the game? I said, I'm the guy that's going to be honest with you and tell you that I did it to make some cash. Good. So like I had a, it would have been like the Legion baseball locally. I grew up in a, in a town called Thorold. So at the time it was about 16,000 people. My best friend, uh, his father was running the local Legion baseball and he was short on officials. He, he said to me one day, Hey Keith, how'd you like to try this umpiring? I said, well, why the hell not? I enjoyed it first time out, especially when they handed me the cash. Oh, like yeah. you didn't get a check. They handed me like 20 bucks and we're talking, I'm 45 now. So we're, t I was probably 14. We're talking 30 years ago. Right. Yep. So we're not even talking Y2K yet. And I'm making 20 bucks a night as a 14 year old. Oh yeah. At 15. So that was probably the allure, right? I'm making money. No question. Yep. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. So then I kept going back and I remember I enjoyed it so much and I was doing well. And I started looking at these guys in the big leagues that are, you know, they got these inside chest protectors. And at that time we were using the balloon. And even at that age, I knew this was, didn't make a whole lot of sense. This gigantic thing. It's nice because I'm not getting hit in the arms or anything, but right. I, I want to look like a pro. You know, I was enjoying it and I went and fashioned my own inside chest protector out of a pair of Sherwood or Cooper shoulder pads. Remember those, you know, those yep. flimsy one, like old timers uh, shoulder pads yep. out of a pair of those. And are you old enough to remember Sears catalog? Yes. It was about an inch and a half thick at the time. That was the fall edition. So, yeah. So I drilled, I drilled a couple of holes in the top, took some old hockey laces or shoelaces, tied that sucker down on the bottom. I had like an inside chest protector. I had that for a couple of years and my parents saw that I really enjoyed it. So finally they got me 
for Christmas, the one year they got me one of those inside, like the rib, like the old plus pos, but not that nice. Like a Rawlings. Rawlings. Like a, yeah, it looked like it was like the umpire's version of a kid's chest protector. Yep. Like I'd be petrified to put that on nowadays and, and go behind the plate, even with a kid soft tossing. Yeah. So, I, I mean, they saw I really enjoyed it. And, and so that's what made me stick with it. I got started because I loved getting paid cash at the plate. And what else was I going to do in the summertime as a 14-year-old? You know, 15, I keep saying maybe I was 15 or 16 and people keep telling me I was younger than that. So, uh, whatever, we'll go with my story, not theirs. That's why you're um, here. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's why I got started umpiring. Somebody asked me, told me I could make some money and I said, woo wee. That is exactly why we get into it. I don't understand why people lie, but we get into it to make money. Oh, and I also started umpiring just so I could eject old people. Yes, I'm not okay. going to lie on that. Yeah. Might've had a little ego when I first started. Well, I, I always said to people, you know, it was my like my BS meter, right? So even as a kid, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm not going to put up with you being like that, right? So right. talking earlier about a life lesson, you know, the ability to stand up for yourself or stick up for yourself was a, a huge one, you know, and I, I still get a story from one of our local guys. He's like, hey, do you remember when you told that guy to F off? And I was like, that didn't happen. <laughs> I didn't curse ever on a baseball field at anybody, especially not as like a 15 year old. He goes, no, that happened. I said, not a chance. I will never admit to something like that because it's not the truth. Fair enough. I've been accused of saying things I didn't say before. People would say, oh, he said this. And I'm like, not a chance I said that. That is not in my vocabulary. Now, if I called them X, X or Y, then they're probably telling the truth. But I do get frustrated when they put words in my mouth of things I would never say. But I did like I did have my first death threat as a about a sixteen year old, uh, where uh, Been there. I probably had an ejection or two, uh, and one of the people who got ejected his grandfather threatened to stab me. Stig old pony boy. And I was like, yeah, no, we're gonna call the cops. Like, yeah, exactly. normally I'd brush something like that off, but this guy's sixty years old and he might actually stab me. I believe him. <laughs> you got nothing um, left to lose. So cops is filmed on location with the men and women of law enforcement. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Yeah, so we're gonna call the cops. This has gone too far. <laughs> like, this is kids' baseball. It's like Pee Wee or Bantam baseball. It's gone too far. Did I mention it was house league? <laughs> Some people say living the dream. That person was living in a dream. Wow. Yeah. So let's look at your Baseball Canada experiences. Were you part of the Baseball Canada National Empire program prior to going the minor league route? Kind of, sort of. So yeah. I went to umpire school for the first time. So I went twice. I went to Harry's uh, in 2008. Okay. Sorry, 2000, 2008, 1998. That's when you like retired, That's I thought. The old timers is getting to me. Yeah, 1998. So I flew down to Florida in 98. I would have been 22, just turned 22 or turned 22 while I was down there. Uh, there was another Canadian guy in my class named Andrew Higgins. Some of you may <laughs> yes. know who he is or not. So we both fared pretty well. So they ended up taking 15 people from that class to the to, to the minor league evaluation course or PBUC evaluation course at the time. And Andrew was selected uh, to go. And I think they told me I was 17th is what they, they classed me at, 17. Uh, and so a lovely lady named Lillian Patterson has since passed away. She really looked after the umpires in the minor leagues and like cared about us like we were her, her, her own kids. Uh, but she called me and was like, you know what, we need to get your visa and stuff in order to get all your information because we're pretty sure that 
we're going to go way past that 15 from Harry's and it would have been the same number 15 from Jim Evans at the time. And uh, I think Brinkman was still in, I think he was still going Brinkman, Joe Brinkman oh, yeah, school. He was Coco Florida. Didn't he go up till 99? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you might know better than no, me. But, I, yeah. And it might've been like 15, 15 and 10. So there right. were probably 30 people. So uh, there were, didn't end up going to the, to the, to the reserve list they called. Didn't end up going there. So I never ended up getting a job in, in 98. So there were, I think, just a couple of people who didn't in 98 didn't get jobs. So uh, RJ Thompson was the name of one guy and then Andrew. And Andrew, for some reason, chose not to go back. Whatever his life had going on, he chose not to go back. But uh, of course, you know, at the time, Harry School had a reputation for wanting people to come back more than once. And I said, well, that makes sense, right? It's cash flow. You know, they are running a business, right? So anyways, I went back and, and I had a really successful uh, camp and finished as a, I won this big gigantic trophy that I broke shortly after getting it. Was like top returning student or whatever. So Most improved. That was 98. The number one student in that class was Mike Estabrook. Um, you guys might yep. know who he is. He's Major in League the yep. Yeah. So anyways, I was all set to go down to the evaluation course in Coco and a week before I was supposed to go, I got a call from Mike Fitzpatrick, who was the umpire director for Peabuck at the time and said, uh, sorry, apparently for the last 30 years, we've been doing this whole visa thing incorrectly. So, you know, we had this visa in place for you to come down and now INS is telling us we can't. Okay. So, but don't worry, we're going to issue you a special invite for next year. I had to wait and that was pretty demoralizing, man. Like, you have to wait a full year to go down and don't now you don't know any of the people that are there. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, I went back down to camp in, uh, in 2000, I was one of the original, the first nine to get a job offer okay. to the Gulf coast league. And the cool part about them having a work visa in place for me already was I was allowed to stay at Coco Expo and work college and high school games. Okay. Um, and then I was able to go to extended spring training. If they didn't, if I didn't have that hiccup, I wouldn't have been able to do either one of those things. So it worked out for me. And yeah, so I, I ended up getting hired in 2000 and a few weeks, two to three weeks into that Coco Expo. Uh, I'll get into a story about Coco Expo okay. and what a grind that is. Um, so I, I get offered to go to extended spring in Sarasota, Florida, which is one of the best experiences of my entire life. Okay. Uh, and then, so I get offered a contract they're like hey we know you didn't work a single game in the gulf coast league but we're going to assign you to the new york pen league and i'm like sweet i don't have to sweat my ass off right Florida all yeah it's a big right? difference like, big difference i get stadiums we get fans you know like it's you travel a little bit so i mean it really was a it really was a blessing not i mean i think the stadium games in the gulf coast league are really good for development because it's hot you know you nobody's there to watch so you can screw stuff up all the time and learn from it and you don't have that added uh, stress of travel and hotels and all that other stuff right you get to really leave your stuff in one spot and oh there's lots of beaches in florida there are no beaches in hudson valley new york no. right or yeah. or jamestown new york there's no beaches in jamestown no. there's just bat infested hotels <laughs> right and groundskeepers that refuse to throw to put 
fire foul lines onto the warning track until you tell the general manager that the game's not starting until you have fair foul lines on the warning track. But <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, Coco is an interesting part. They keep the umpires there after the fact. So they do evaluation course, college and baseball, and then a supervisor's leave. And they used to leave us at Coco and it was like a dorm room and just concrete floor. And it was like 14 grown men in one room and 11 grown men and Rhea Cortizio in the other room. <laughs> so poor Rhea was around that. So it smelled like ass yep. and just, you know, communal showers. It was dirty. Guys said they were knocking their plate shoes out. They're knocking dirt on the floor. And the liner on the mattress underneath my sheet was plastic and the mm. sheet wouldn't stay on. So you'd wake up in the middle of the night and it was plastic mm. and it was no air conditioning. It was getting hot. Like it was really sounds real tasty, real horrible living conditions. And you'd get about two or three weeks in and guys would have two games a day. And they're like, you know what? I'm tired. I want to work one game and then I want to drink a bunch of beer right? Right, <laughs> and hang out with the guys and watch a game. And you would get some guys that were just starving to death, right? They had no money. We had a guy there, Dan DeHaan is his name. I mean, and he was eating ketchup sandwiches. So Dan would work. That guy would work like five games a day. Like he would take everybody's games because he needed the money. He was like, you know, family at home. And and, I mean, just Just trying to make it work, just trying to make it work. Right. (laughs) And, and I would work my like, I started even that early where I don't like working more than one game. I hate double headers, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think we, just, do. we don't know how to do this twice. Like yeah. I don't even want to do this once sometimes. Why do it twice? So we're in those living conditions. And then they, we get to the end of that. And I think it's like, you know, that started in March and then we get to end of April. So I was only there about a month and they said, Hey, we're sending you to extended spring training, drive across the state to Sarasota in Sarasota. They, they house us in condos. So there's six umpires, three condos. You shared rooms, like one and a half or twin bed or whatever in a room, but you shared a like a little living room and a kitchen and you know, a little balcony. So the six of us were there. They put you on an island called Siesta Key. Okay. You're like 150 meters from this white sand beach in the warm Gulf of Mexico. You're like 300 meters the other way to the strip with like the daiquiri deck and the beach club that had a live reggae band every Thursday night. I'm like 23, Mm -hmm. 24 years old. Prime time. I worked a lot of games in extended spring training, not at a hundred percent, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) And Sundays were a write off because we would tear, we had no games on Sundays, So we would tear it down and we're in every, every Saturday night, we were watching the sun come up on Sunday morning and, you know, swimming in the Gulf of Mexico. So like talk about what a cool experience, right? Right. Being 23 years old. So definitely maximize uh, that per diem. Yeah. I mean, used it all plus the money that you got paid for being there. Right. Uh, But it's interesting because you get some great deals. Like I I could, sometimes you drink all night at the bar and you don't, you pay $10 for, for, (laughs) I mean, somebody's making a bunch of money and tips right there and it's not the bar owner. Right. But it was, yeah, it was a blast. God, it was a lot of fun. You sure Um, that wasn't your buddy picking up the tab? That's why he was eating ketchup sandwiches. Oh, you know what? He was with me in extended spring training, uh, but he, I mean, he didn't make it out to the bar all the time. He was, uh, you know, a man of God, you know, he was living life the right way. 
uh, <laughs> while we were being degenerates, man. <laughs> the rest of us. Oh, yeah. I just look at those ketchup packets and think about all the nutrients. I don't think he had the uh, energy to make it out. We used to, I mean, we used to take turns, you know, buying him lunch and stuff. He'd be like, Dan, come on, we're going down to get subs. No, no, I'm good. No, Dan, let's go. <laughs> Like I can't, it's, this is not even about you anymore, but I can't stand seeing you eat ketchup, ketchup sandwiches anymore. Like this is making, I'm going to hurl, right? Like I can't watch this. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the poor guy, uh, I think he's doing okay now. I think he has like a full-time job I and mean, he's got a bunch of kids and so life is good. Life's good for Dan people. Don't <laughs> yeah, worry. Dan, yeah. Dan is doing okay. Yeah. That's a good, you know, I, I miss Sarasota. Let's be honest here. Do you miss Sarasota or do you miss 23-year-old Keith McConkey with hair? Well, I miss 23-year-old Keith McConkey in Sarasota. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, life wasn't so complicated back then. Now, you said you skipped the Gulf Coast League and you went right to the New York yeah. Penn. How long did you spend there? I spent the full season there. You know, I worked with a guy named Art Stewart from Chicago. One of the best, one of the best partners I ever worked with, Art Stewart. Great guy. He used to drink Maker's Mark and Coke every time we went out, but... There was never a night that he didn't want to accompany you. Um, so you're never going out alone. And there were some cool cities in the New York Penn League. Thinking about, you know, Jamestown, New York was, you know, wasn't the worst city, but it wasn't the best. They didn't get very many fans. And uh, But, like, you got to go places. Williamsport was a city. So we got to, we checked out the Little League, you know, the home of the Little League World Series. Yep. And we stayed at a hotel called the Janetti that they call, you know, didn't have very good air conditioning. So the nickname of the hotel was called the sweaty Janetti. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> so it was, I mean, it was fitting. Man. Yeah. You, the air conditioning was old. It was right downtown, but Williamsport was a cool town. Um, you got places like Mahoning Valley, which I think it's called, it's like Niles, Ohio, you know, great ballpark. They used to get four five, 6,000 people a night and you're in your first season. You know, and so we used to love going to to there because it was a cool ballpark, and you know, we had some hookups. It was a place we used to go to, a place called Sullivan's, and that's where I really got my current affinity for Irish whiskey. You know, a place called Sullivan's because you'd go there, and you, the owner would be like, "Hey, boys, what's going on? Here's a shot." Like, can't say no, dude. I'm I'm driving. Here's a shot, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> dartboards, and yeah, they, I mean, they looked after you, right? You know, some great ballparks. The travel was pretty good. It wasn't very far. The only right. bad thing about the New York Penn League was two game series and home and homes. Like you'd go from the middle of nowhere, New Jersey, it was the Cardinals at the time, to Hudson Valley, New York, was the Devil Rays. And it was about an hour and a half drive. I mean, you would go we'll spend one night in a hotel, get up in the morning, drive to the next city the next yeah. day, and then you're in another city the next day. And that made it hard to get into any sort of routine. Uh, once you get to long season where they have, you know, three and four game sets, you, you at least can take a couple of pieces of clothes out of a suitcase, right? You know, you know, you leave the vehicle unpacked for a couple of days, you don't have to pack it up every, every day. So, and they made us in a ball, they make you travel during the day. Okay. So that can create some problems, right? Like I remember in the Midwest league going from somewhere in Michigan to Wisconsin, and you get stuck in midday traffic in Chicago and you're starting to get concerned you're not making it to Wisconsin, right? If you had to make that trip overnight, it's a, it's easy, right? You, you're not going to run into that traffic in Chicago. But yeah, the Penn League, one year. And then I went back to spring training. So I got my first season in spring training, went to Vero Beach with the Dodgers, uh, which baseball 
Dodger Town, they used yep. to call it, was a real cool setup. They had the backfields, you had rooms right on site, and they, you know, they had buffet and the locker rooms there. So you really didn't have to leave Baseball City. You did if you wanted to find something else to do, and there's not a ton to do in Vero. It's a pretty quiet retirement community. Yes. But the Dodgers were a top-notch organization and really looked after you and fed you well and did your laundry and all that stuff. So That's cool. did spring training there. And then forgot to mention, 2000 when I got in, they hired 50 people. Yes, that was right after the, the strike. Right after the 99 thing. Yeah, so they hired 50 people and they went deep into the reserve, into the reserve list. And I'm thinking now, I'm looking at some of the guys that came off the reserve list. A top couple were a guy named Chris Conroy. Yep, working the show. I don't know if people know who he is, but he's probably going to, he's like a two-man in the big leagues now. Yep. Uh, and then another guy named Delphine Colon, who probably worked 150 games in the big leagues, Puerto Rican guy, and then for some reason, you know, and gigantic, about 6'6 six, six or something. Uh, and he never made it full-time. But, you know, interesting enough that those guys were – would never would have got jobs that year and may never have gone back because they weren't even close to getting jobs out of umpire school. It was like a fluke, right? Um, I think we're going to see that coming up in the next couple of years too, with last year's major hire. Yeah. They're, I think major league baseball is trying to some, keep some of those 99 hirees around, you know, promote them to crew chief. They're trying to do that on purpose because they can't have another mass exodus, right? They can't have 15 jobs. Now, the cool part about the minor leagues is you look at double A and triple A, these guys, they get video of every game that they have. So if they have an ejection, they can play it back and review it. And did I handle it right? And, and they can go back and watch pitches and mm-hmm. uh, plays. And so really the train from a training perspective, they have so many tools at their disposal that, that I never had. Well, that's just it's, you didn't have that opportunity. No, no. And I mean, they're boring a little bit these days. You know, they don't have as much fun as we did. They think fun is going to the gym and golfing. And, right. I, and I love going to the gym and golfing as much as everybody else, but you can't golf at 11 o'clock at night. Well, that's it, right? Yeah. And of no course, reason. the social media world, you can't get caught out doing something these days. Oh. It's going to haunt you in eight years when maybe you get the call. Yeah, when the when Major League Baseball is doing their due diligence and they're knocking on your neighbor's doors and stuff to try to make sure that you're a good fit there, you know, those things might come up. So I get it. It's uh, yeah. I'm not sure I'd want to be in the minor leagues at this stage of the game. Well, now the good part is in, in double A as a crew chief, I was making $22 a day in per diem. Now they at least get the government rate. They're making 60 bucks a day in per yeah, diem. I'm perfect. like, well, you can be in better shape because you can eat a really nice salad at lunch. You could eat three meals a day and you could eat a salad and you could eat a proper breakfast instead of, Load, like absolutely loading up on cinnamon buns and waffles at the, you know, at the continental breakfast, you know, you can go have a real breakfast and, you know, you don't have to double size the cheesesteak at lunch, eat it at one thirty, go take a nap and then don't eat before the game. Right. Like yeah, my pregame different. meal is a cup of coffee. And then I'm going to, you know, especially places like the Florida state league going through your, Jupiter used to get two ice cold hot dogs. Those suckers, we'd have to bury them in the garbage so the club didn't see that we threw them out. I'm like, I can't. Number one, it's a million degrees outside. So all I want to do is chug four bottles of Gatorade and three bottles of water before I leave the locker room. And now I'm not hungry. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't don't want to eat two ice cold hot dogs. You filled it. Yeah, you mentioned Art Stewart and you said he was the best partner you ever had. 
What no makes, one of the best. One, one of the, the best. best. Okay. What makes a good partner in minor league baseball? A good partner, I mean, generally it'd be like in life, right? So right. I mean, I've heard stories about driving and one partner is a smoker, he wants to smoke in the car and doesn't care what the other guys think. Right. You know, so a good partner is, you know, someone who at the time I was going through there, he shared a room too. Right. So you put two, you know, young but grown men in a room together in a hotel room together and you sleep in the same room the whole time as this guy uh, you know leaves the bathroom door open when he goes in or you know is he respectful of of you all the time and, and art really was uh, he was that type of guy and and most of the partners i had were pretty good about the room sharing thing but Once a good I got, partner on the field is important off the field too like there's that's what makes a good partner it's a 360 compliment candidly when you're in that situation you're judging what good of a person your partner is more off the field than you are okay. on the field. Fair enough. I mean, you're all, you're not going to get a partner sue or you on the field and professional level because really that's going to bite themselves in the butt, right? You're all going to protect each other regardless of what's going on off the field. You're going to protect each other on the field. Uh, you're going to have each other's back because you have to, right? It's, um, you know, you never know when you're going to have to fight your way out of something. And and old Artie and I had a situation in Hudson Valley when you talked about the runner's lane interference. We had one and and we missed it, right? It, it was the runner was on the inside and the ball came right over the shoulder of the runner, never touched him hit the first baseman right in the chin that ended up being the win and run. And the manager who's no longer a professional baseball because he was a lunatic chased us all the way down the first baseline, like all the way down the right field line to a locker room and wouldn't let us get into a locker. That's my so, baseball special right there. Wouldn't let us get in the locker. Room. <laughs> and it was funny because the Cardinals, the, it was St. Louis team, the Cardinals director of field operations or some guy that worked for the major league club was there. And he called his equivalent with the devil rays and they called them and threatened to fire him on the spot. So like you're embarrassing the devil rays organization. Really? We don't care what happened in your a ball game. I think that was their yeah. point. Yeah. We don't really care. It's not about you. It's not about the umpires. It's about our players and their development. So you should start focusing on the things that we feel are important, right? Like, right. Um, but yeah, so he was crazy. I think he lasted about two years as a minor league manager, and he was out. He would just fly off the handle about stuff that he should never have flown off the handle about. But yeah, that was chase us down. And, oh, did I mention that wouldn't let us back in the locker room, and that was at the end of game one of a doubleheader? <laughs> We had to get changed and go right back out there. Now I understand where you get your love for double headers. I don't think I, as far as I can remember, I don't think he was managing game two. Okay. Um, I think the devil race probably told him, Hey, you're sitting out game two. let the hitting coach manage or something right. because you're likely to get yourself run pretty early in game two. So. It, it's a ball and he's yeah, not making like much short, of a salary. 60 something games or something we played right or 70 some games i think played 76 games or 79 games or some crazy number uh in a very short period of time you know season started around mid to 20th of june or something so and you get rain outs there's not much time to make them up i remember we made one trip to lowell mass and we worked four games in two days mm. and i was like i never want to do this again this right. is awful Back then, did you guys play seven innings in the minor leagues on doubleheaders? Sevens and doubleheaders, yeah. yeah. 
I got to say, I like seven innings in Major League doubleheaders, but what I like the most is that they're making the games up right away that weekend, trying to get it done within the series. Everyone gets excited for the series in that time of the year, so get the games out of the way. Don't push it down the road because you could run into problems later. Yeah, yeah. From an umpire perspective, I, I appreciate sevens more than nines. I really Especially do. when there's two. Yeah, and yeah. In Major League Baseball, they got it pretty nice, though, too, is that the guys working the bases are the ones that got to rock both games. New plate umpire for each game, so. Yeah, well, there's a lot of money at stake, right? Oh, no question. No question. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of the game. Yeah. Before we move on from A-ball, I just want to know, how many years did you spend in A-ball total? Uh, so, when I, I left the New York Penn League and I went to extended spring training, this time in Port St. Lucie with the Mets, uh, and spent the full time. It was crazy because I was like the next guy to get promoted. At that time, we just started rankings. Like, okay. here's your ranking. So I think I was number 16 to get promoted in, you know, out of the New York Penn League, you know, that high, whatever they call it, short season A, they right. call it at the time. So I was number 16 and and it was like, I was the next guy to go, next guy to go, next guy to go. And I went the, through the whole time. I was scheduled to go to the South Atlantic League instead of uh, – Sorry, not the South Atlantic League. I was scheduled to go back to the New York Penn League. But at the All-Star break, something happened up the chain. And a guy named Mike Malinsky, who you guys may have heard of, he was working with in the Midwest League. And he got promoted to high A. And so I got promoted to fill his spot. And I worked with a guy named Billy Parker, who's now a fire chief in uh, his hometown of Michigan. But Billy and I were also, we were at Sarasota together. Uh, he was a guy that was a year ahead of me, so he would have gotten in in 99 when I was supposed to go to the uh, evaluation course. Uh, so we ended up working the rest of the season in the Midwest League together. That was a great league, by the way. The league president there, George Spelius, is what a classy human being. Uh, his daughter is married to Marty Foster. Oh, wow. Yep. He's also a big leaguer. Big, uh, yep. And, I mean, he was the league president at the time, and he used to billet the umpires at his house. Lo and behold, Marty and his daughter, you know, yeah, had a little yeah, spark. We'll yeah. call it the little spark. And and anyways, <laughs> now they're married and have a family together. But George was just the best. He would look after the umpires unlike any other league president I'd ever come across. Okay. Like he was a remarkable human being. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, you know, after that season, I once again, I think I was ranked number 16 again. So I had a pretty good you know, got the playoffs in the Midwest League. I had just, I'd worked the championship series in the New York Penn League. Went to Midwest League, met a great bunch of guys. You know, one of my best friends came to my wedding. Jeff Spizak is his name, ended up working with me in double A, but that's really where I got to know him was in the Midwest League. Uh, and then uh, went to spring training the next year. And where the heck did I go? So I was in Vero with the Dodgers my first year. My second year, yeah, I would have been at baseball city it was called with the royals back when the royals were in florida and great group of guys todd tishner was on my spring training crew uh scott kennedy uh who you might know scott kennedy from pump a tire and and officials uh, connected what the heck yes officially connected that's what give him a plug there uh, we were on that crew together uh, with the Royals, and probably the biggest memory I have there, uh, besides Titch making it to the big leagues, uh, and the Royals just want to talk about a classy organization, man. They would hook you up, big spread in the minor league umpires' locker room. <laughs> you never saw that during spring training. But we our hotel was right on the main strip, and there was nothing there. 
like we were right on the I-4, which is a big highway that goes from one side of the state to the other. And there was this Chinese food restaurant two doors down from the hotel. And I'm not a seafood guy. Like I don't, I don't eat crab or lobster or anything, but these guys on my crew, we go to this Chinese food restaurant. They'd be there for two hours, just crushing crab legs. Like there were two days a week where it was all you could eat crab legs. And these guys ate all you could eat crab legs. Oh. I'd be like, see you guys in an hour when you get back to the hotel. <laughs> but what a blast. Uh, yeah. So then, I mean, I got, I, I left spring training there and, and I spent uh, two weeks in the South Atlantic League. Worked a couple of series, Canapolis, North Carolina, which is like the Dale Earnhardt Jr. space. Okay. And then I think I was in Greensboro with the Yankees first series. And then I got I got the call. I got promoted to the Florida State League uh, where I worked with Mike Estabrook. So Estabrook was uh, on my career in the Florida State League. All-star, not all-star game, uh, playoffs in the, the Florida State League, which was interesting because we're in Lakeland and we had a, it was my first tropical storm experience. We got rained out one night in the playoffs. There was two feet of water. Okay. on the field and like, we're not playing tonight boys but the the cool part about the state league was you had all these i mean you got rain every night okay. so you want to talk about like if you're you're a minor league umpire and you want to learn how to handle rain situations you need to go through the florida state league right because you get rain come july you get rain every single day five o'clock every night every day for an hour and a half or, and yeah i mean lightning strikes crazy and so like, that's the first place where I saw a grounds crew not be able to get the tarp on the field because it just, not that you asked for the tarp too late, just it started raining too hard. Uh, that was in Dunning that happened to me. And then, you know, we had a, a 4th of July game in Port Charlotte where the Rangers played. And that's where I got my first glimpse of a guy straight from college to high A named Mark Texera. You may have heard of him. He's yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, played with the Yankees for a little bit, you know. And so we, it rained harder than I've ever seen it rain in my life. And we look in the parking lot and there's some, some shallow spots in the parking lot and the water was up to the top of the side windows <laughs> in the parking lot. And I'm thinking there's like four feet of water yeah. on the field. And I'm like, why have you guys not called this yet? They're like sold out fireworks. We're like, but this is not happening. The groundskeeper goes, oh Yeah. Apparently, they had a system underneath the playing surface that would suck the water away. Flip a switch, and it would go. Wow. It stopped raining. There were feet of water on the field. Like 35 minutes after it stopped raining, we were throwing first pitch. Dry as a bone. I was like, hello, what just happened? Like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And they had this, you know, we had another situation in Port Charlotte that appeared to be the place on the Gulf. We got all the rain where we had lightning. We're supposed to play a double header. We had lightning for like four hours. It was a five o'clock start. We, we banged it at nine o'clock and they were showing us on this really cool radar. I don't even know what it was called. SAS or some other kind of radar that they could show you cells within 25 meters of the stadium. Oh, wow. That's how precise it was. Yeah. I was like, that is amazing. So that's the type of stuff they're dealing with in the big leagues that we don't get to see at our, right. you know, the local bar park. We're like, what's the radar look like? Let me grab my cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like this is what I got on this uh, IntelliCast <laughs> app is it looks like we should be good. And, and we're but, not like 45 minutes later, 20% yeah. chance of rain and a hundred percent chance that <laughs> yeah. it actually happened. 
Yeah. So the Florida State League was cool, you know, worked the playoffs and then came home. Sorry, after the New York Penn League, I had gone back down to Florida in October for instructional league. My crew was a guy named Troy Fullwood, who worked a bunch of games in the big leagues. He was my chief. And uh, now he's like the head of the ACC and Sun Coast Conference or something like a pretty big shooter on the college scene from an assigning standpoint. Uh, I got uh, Darren Williams from Arkansas and uh, Chad Fairchild. Okay. Was a name you right, might recognize. Yeah. Yep. So Chad was Chad was on my crew and he was from there. We were, we stayed, where did we stay? Uh, Bradenton maybe. No, we, we, we were camped out in Fort Myers. So we were down in Fort Myers and we had the Red Sox and the Twins. And then we would drive north for the uh, for the Pirates and somebody else. But that was a cool experience going back in, in the fall. Uh, yeah, and then so when I got from A-ball, I, after the Florida State League, I got promoted in the offseason at AA. And that was a bit of a scary experience because I went to spring training that year with the Twins. Adam Dowdy was my crew chief. And Adam, at the time had sort of he was getting in trouble a little bit from major league baseball and he had had big league spring and then they sent him back down to minor league spring uh but man did i ever learn a lot from him about situation handling and stuff right and then i went to first year double a and uh things went okay back to spring training the next year to vero again damian beal was my crew chief and and damian was another guy that had some big league time after that yeah that went to double a as a crew chief uh and i had uh, jeff spizak and a guy named mayhew edwards the third or mikey edwards they were on my crew um and then you know after that season we worked playoffs and stuff and spizak uh went to nicaragua for winter ball okay uh, I went to Venezuela, uh, and so did Mike. And, you know, in talking to Jeff, we had vastly different experiences. Okay. Right. He was just so. like, oh, they loved us. They treated us like gold and they really, really looked after us. And it was like the first year that Nicaragua had had a winter league. So they were trying to do it up right so right. that they could stay and get a lot of affiliated people. And, and it was not an established league and Venezuela was tough, man. It was really intense yeah so you wouldn't think winter ball would would have that kind of intensity and it was really intense and it was the same sort of scenario like you're three flights a week you're three airplane flights a week you weren't working more than one day in a city you know i got really sick i got some sort of stomach infection i lost 21 pounds in 13 days oh gross so it was no joke it was for a modium and for a leave just to make sure i didn't crap myself when i was tying up my shoes like and then the games are all four hours long i'd been there it was like my third game or something i'm at second base and i my leg gets all itchy i'm like what's going on why why is my leg itching i look and i have ants crawling all up and down my leg like up my pant leg behind the sock they're biting me and i look and i was like i've been standing like this normal positioning i would take on the inside of the infield at second base in a four umpire system i've been standing on an ant hill <laughs> with these south american ants that i have nothing about and you're itching your neck and i was like this is a terrible way to start my first trip out of sight of north america right like, yeah and so i went over my crew chief my crew chief uh venezuelan guy named manny gonzalez Okay, another um, major leaguer yeah, name. Refer to him too. So Manny's my crew chief, and and he's good. At the time, he's in. I think he's in A ball, or something. Maybe you know, whatever A ball. But he's been working this Venezuelan winter league with all these big leaguers for years, and so he's he's a pretty damn good A ball umpire, 
right? And and he knows the the way of the land, and he speaks pretty decent English, and of course he's fluent in in Spanish and knows everywhere. And I said to him, Manny, like this is going on. Uh, he calls out the trainer. Well, it turns out the trainer is a guy that works in affiliated ball in the states. He's from Venezuela, but he speaks perfect English. He's like, yeah, they're probably not going to cause a problem, but here, take this. It was like Benadryl or something. Take this just in case. <laughs> and it's like, it was, I was like, it's the third inning. I'm like, I'm gonna be sleeping got, by the fifth. We got, we got three more hours to play because the games they do. They got 35 guys on the active roster, and they're doing lefty, lefty, righty, righty matchups in like the second inning, third <laughs> inning. And you got your starters, like your best starters in the league, are all maybe one and zero or zero and zero. Like nobody's got a win loss record. All the relievers do, but um, they're paying all these guys this money, so they want to get them into games. Right. And so the games are all four hours long. Like some were five, and just exhausting. So yeah, so it was. I mean, and of course, once I got sick, I was like, oh, I don't want to do anything, man. I just want to, you know, drink twelve bottles of Gatorade and go to bed. And then, I mean, you just, you got to strap it on. You go out every night and the games start late and you just, you make it work, right? And you get some situation handling experience, that's for sure. I mean, I was down there with a guy named Angel Campos, who's one of my best friends ever through baseball. And he worked like 585 yeah. games in the big leagues and, you know, didn't didn't get a full-time gig. And, you know, he had a situation with a catcher named Yorbi Torrealba. Uh, who played with Colorado for years and the Giants, I believe, where, you know, he was, I mean, he got to AAA and I think it is like fourth or fifth year, might've been his fifth year. He got to AAA and then he was a good umpire. So the big leagues was looking at him and basically said, you need to go to winter ball, handle as many situations as you can. So Tori, I have a fair foul down the third base line and Tori Alba starts screaming at the Venezuelan umpire third base and angel tells him in Spanish to, to quit it, you know, stop mm-hmm. blah, blah. And Tori Alba basically tells him where to go. So angel dumps him and Tori Alba charges him. Angel puts his mask up in front of him to protect himself. Well, doesn't he split Tori Alba's lip open? <laughs> like you talk about the worst luck, right? Situation the worst, like, like he's just putting his hands up to protect himself as Tori Alba's a, you know, raging bull charging at him, splits his lip. Guess who's waiting in the parking lot with his posse after the game for Angel? Oh, no. Like, that's, you experience that in Venezuela. You'd never experience that, in, you know, in, in the U.S. or continental America. Like, you did, didn't yeah. you, out there in Hudson Valley with the Devil Race? Well, yeah, no, I was never actually concerned that. about my physical well-being. Um, he wasn't going to put his hands on us, but he was re- making it really hard for me to get ready for my plate job, um, <laughs> right? Like, and I mean, having no experience that that throws you off a little bit. You probably, I was probably flustered for a few innings, and I think I did miss an absolute gut shot. You know, bell high fastball right in the middle of the plate. Ball. Where was that one? I don't know. <laughs> like. <laughs> right somewhere right down the middle you know that one's on me i'll get it right next time i promise well that concludes this episode of the leading edge where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate join us on our next episode where we complete this interview with former minor league umpire and current wbsc umpire keith mcconkie topics covered are completing his minor league career working the 2005 all-Star Futures game and being on the field for the 2005 Major League Baseball Home Run Derby, 
Working international baseball, including the 2019 Pan American Games in Lima, Peru. And of course, we put them through the gauntlet and make them do 10 questions. But before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common rule myth that people believe that a runner is out if they slap hands or high-five players or coaches on their own team when they are rounding the bases. Our question is, what happens if they slap somebody on the other team? Take care, everybody, and stay safe. <laughs>